Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello there, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I have a special guest today. She's Barbara Gittenstein, and she's the author of the newly released book, Experiences the Angled Road, Memoir of an Academic. She has also written over 30 academic articles on Jewish-American literature and academic administration. Her extensive academia career includes serving as provost and executive vice president at Drake University and as president of the College of New Jersey. She has been often interviewed on radio and television stations in New Jersey, focusing on higher education issues. And she has such a fascinating journey that I'm super excited to <laughs> have her on the show. Hello, Barbara. I know they called you Bobby, too. So I'm going <laughs> to. But welcome to Back to Bay. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, I'm humbled because, you know, you were so kind to share. I got like an early uh, reading of the book and all you're doing. And uh, it's so exciting. You have such an incredible journey that, you know, I really feel very blessed and honored to have you here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to talk about it. Well, and, and you know, the, the incredible thing and good thing in a way is often I have people on the show and they just tell, you know, it's about the journey and your life journey. And in this case, we're going to talk about your book, which is really a memoir of your life journey. So it's really a perfect match because we get to talk about the book as we're talking about your your own journey. Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so one of the things, and, and we'll obviously, I always start with, you know, learning about your childhood and where you come from. And that's really a critical aspect of your writing because you in in your own words and for what I read you always kind of confronted obstacles of what you said is being the only whatever in the room which I love right. and so so why don't we go there and explain us a little bit on how you got to that you know realization I'm the only woman the only Jewish American etc so tell us about the start and your childhood and, and how that came to be Absolutely. So my family moved moved to South Alabama in in the 30s, and my father moved in the 40s, and he was 17 when he moved. He had lived in New York City, and to move to a small town in South Alabama, as you might suspect, was quite a culture shock. He was also very a very um, cultured kind of person. So very, very interested in classical music. And to suddenly be in this small town of about 2000 with people who probably had never been to New York City and certainly had never visited Carnegie Hall, <laughs> where he loved to go as, as a young man. So it began with my father. I grew up in that small town. We were the only Jewish family, one of three Jewish families in the county. We were just different and odd by by our religious affiliation, also by our being Yankees, which was equally different. And and furthermore, my father ran the shirt factory in town, so he was one of the largest employers in the county. So for all sorts of reasons, I was just different. 
people were not cruel to me. I wouldn't say that. But you couldn't help feeling that you were the only, as I said, whatever in the room. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And if I may interrupt, it makes me think sometimes people say, think that when you feel the only whatever is because you have, you know, disfavorable conditions of some sort. And everything you've described is like you, you were blessed, you know, you were coming, your family from your, so it's all good stuff. And yet it made you feel different. And sometimes people, I think, confuse that with, you know, it's not only because of bad things that you're poor or you have something, it's also on the good side, when things are good, but you're different, that also, you know, creates some sort of uneasiness in a way. That That's absolutely true. But also there were great differences in, in values between us and many of the people, not everyone, but many of the people with whom we lived. At, at the time that I was growing up, I was born in 1948. So I was growing up, you know, in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, when, uh, the civil rights issues were very powerful in South Alabama. And as you might suspect, not everyone in our small town agreed with my family's attitude towards racial relations. Mm -hmm. I imagine. I imagine. Wow, that's that's so rich. That could make a whole podcast on that on that Absolutely. Of, of information. So we'll keep that in mind. So so you had this bringing where already at an early age, you felt a little different. What were your passions when you were growing up in terms of how your escapes or, or what you loved to do? I was always drawn to music. And when I was young, I was a dancer, then hit a certain age and it became clear that the body type that is necessary for a ballet uh, dancer was not mine. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I had the same thing. <laughs> My sister always was like the star and I was like the rabbit or the tree or something like that. <laughs> so I began as a ballet dancer and, and again, discovered that I didn't have the talent, nor, as I said, nor the body type. And then turned to voice. I was very, I was very interested in singing and classical music. I was very interested in opera. And up through the first two years of my college career, I took a voice lessons quite seriously and then came up against that that obstacle when you realize you may be good for a high school chorus, but you're not good enough to sing on the stage at the Met. <laughs> and and so that was a powerful learning moment for me when you realized you had to completely change your career direction. Uh, because it simply was not going to be, it was not going to be a success. And there were many years when I felt that loss very deeply, that I didn't have the talent, that I couldn't continue. And uh, afterwards found out I, I ended up living a pretty successful life. It's funny you mentioned that because as I start, my kids are still young, but, you know, they start getting my 11-year-old now, you know, get some, some AP classes, some not, some, they're starting to deal with this, you know, disappointment in terms yes. of what they envision. And me and my husband were saying, well, but in a way, it's good that it happens early because it creates more resiliency. I couldn't agree with you more. And and as a as an academic, as is clear in my book, I, I do find a career uh, as an academic. One of the things that worries me the most about young people is their lack of resilience. And I think one of the reasons for that is that they don't experience disappointment early enough. 
And I'm not talking about terrible disappointment, but I mean, finding, but I'm talking about a serious disappointment. I don't mean just not getting on the team, but really having a passion that you find out you don't have the talent to pursue. Uh, And then figure navigating your life to find something else. And it really taught me a, a lot. And the maturity, because I think that sometimes people confuse being optimistic with being objective, right? Like I want this and I want this and, and and I'm all for the mindset too. Like, yes, you have to convince yourself, but it gets to a point where you also have to be objective and say, do I have what I need to succeed in this? Exactly. And so, so tell me a bit about you face this challenge and then you decide to go and change and pivot. What were you in your mind? Because you obviously want to have a very successful career. And as a woman, you know, it was so inspiring to read that, you know, you were the first woman of many things that to achieve certain, you know, positions, which is incredibly inspirational. Was there anything that you think made your decision more clear? Because I think once you have the maturity to say, this is not my path and now I have to choose and people go through it even later in life. What do you think are the, the let's say, defining factors or things you should look into it to, to choose what to pursue? Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I started studying English and therefore became an English professor and then, then an academic administrator because I just like to read. I mean, there was not any conscious kind of choice about that. Like, this is a career. I just looked for something else I could feel as positive about as I did about music. And literature was it. And I found that I just enjoyed it. But I also found that nothing in my previous life was lost. In other words, none of my experiences, either as a dancer or as a singer, was lost. All of them fed into my success as a, as a faculty member and my success as an academic administrator. In fact, one of the things I noticed, which I didn't notice until I became a, a college president, actually, when I would give a lot of speeches and people would say to me, you know, when you speak, when you when you give a speech, not when you're just talking, but when you speak, you sound a little different than you do when you're just talking to someone. And I thought about that, mused about it. And then I realized what I was doing was what I would do when I performed. All that, that those breathing exercises that singers must do, that's how I delivered a speech. So my voice actually was different. It was a better voice for speech delivery than the kind of voice that I'm using now in talking to you. I think the notion of poise that you get from dancing is very important in terms of how you present yourself as a leader. So I don't think anything in my past, even if I felt them as loss, I experienced them as losses originally, were unimportant for my future success. That's, that's incredible. And, and I love the fact that you say you focus on doing what you enjoyed doing. Yes. And sometimes it's something that I find when people, and a lot of my podcast wants to be that, like finding your back to basics, what makes you happy, what you're passionate about. Because sometimes in those little things, we have the gateway to find our greatness. It's just that we are so lost into the bigger picture and what, what I want to become and, and, and what I want to be that we lose a little bit of those passions and those things that make our hearts sing, as I say. Yes. And my decision to go into administration, for instance, because I love teaching. I loved, I loved being a professor. It was, it was performance. 
because it is performance when you're engaging with students and either lecturing to them or leading a discussion, which of course is much more of what you do than lecturing anymore. But I also found that that the interpersonal skills that you that you gained from interacting with people is extremely important. And those probably harken back to what I learned to being the only whatever in the room. You had to think about what you said. That doesn't mean you changed your your views, but you couldn't assume that everybody else that was around you was going to agree with what you said. And so you had to craft your comments in order to convince them, or at least to convince them that you had a legitimate position. I wish people were doing more of that right now. (laughs) I love that. Legitimate position. I think that's such a great way of putting it, rather than, I think sometimes people argue to to say the contrary to whatever you're Mm -hmm. saying, rather than just to to show them they have a legitimate position, to say it in your words, you know? Exactly. And because otherwise, if you're assuming that you your position is the only position, then by definition, the other person who disagrees with you is just wrong (laughs) or an idiot. I mean, (laughs) which is probably not a good way to set up an interpersonal positive relationship. (laughs) Totally agree with that. And you say something in your book that I also like very much that it goes along what we're talking about, that you discover you had the privilege of being an outsider. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I I just love that statement. Well, you know, if, if you are a member of the majority group, whatever that happens to be, and the majority group, you know, it can be African-American. The majority group can be Jewish, depending on where you're living. Uh, it just wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah. I was. You are forced to understand and listen to and appreciate opinions and attitudes different from your own. And that means, number one, you get to hone your own arguments better. And number two, you you have a you listen with a sympathetic ear, uh, which is a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some some attitudes and some comments which just simply have to be rejected. That's that's I do believe that's the case. But the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. That's not the case. The vast majority of the time is the more you talk to people who are different from you, the more you find out that there is some basis of agreement. Absolutely. I totally agree. But did you find the broader your experience was, the broader your knowledge was about other ways and other cultures, the harder sometimes it became to relate to people that haven't had that experience, like the ones that haven't been exposed to so much, that then when you want to kind of highlight the fact that this is like I'm Venezuelan, I just came back from Venezuela. And, and in my country, a lot of people, when they think about the U.S., they think Miami, and that's where I live. But, you know, having had the opportunity to travel extensively through the U.S. and go to rural America and all that, you know, very often I have to say, well, what you think is the U.S. is really not the U.S. It's very different, you know, Florida, <laughs> you know, when you, you talk about the U.S., it's really not that representative of the, the majority. So, and then uh, you you always sound like the one that wants to bring in a new component to the conversation, and you're not saying it just to be a contrarian again, to so to speak, but to broaden that perspective that is not only this universe, but the universe is so much broader. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think you you can get impatient with others, and, and I think you have to resist that. But I also think there there are certain, I will say that there are certain attitudes and certain actions and certain um, episodes that it's really okay to have more of an absolutist response to. And I'm okay with that. I was relieved, I don't want to say proud, but I was relieved, for instance, to see the response to uh, the political leadership in New Mexico recently about the three or maybe it's four murders of Muslim men. It's just not acceptable. There's, there's, there's no way of saying there's another way to interpret this. I think they're being wise not to assert that they're hate crimes because we don't know that yet. But it's really okay to say this is totally unacceptable. I couldn't agree more. This is not, that's not a place for a difference of opinion. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a point, like a parent, there are points, there are moments as a parent that you have to stand strong. Yes. And it's not like, oh, this doesn't look good. No, it's just a matter of discipline at some point needs to be. And and sometimes we, I think, because we want to be politically correct in many arenas, then we are not one thing or the other. And that's where confusion starts to grow. Yeah. And I also want to go back to something that we were talking about before, about this importance of loving what you're doing and how important that is. I also think that when you commit to a, to, to a path in life, for me, I had to have a moral core to which I was committed. And as a consequence, I had to realize, you know, that if, if you look at individuals, if you make it to the presidency of a college or a university, there have to be some values on which you just simply will not budge. And I remember the point at which I realized something was so important to me that if the board didn't like what I was doing, I would walk away from the job. And I think you have to feel comfort with that. And not in a confrontational kind of way, but just say, this is something that matters that much to me. It is that important to me that if 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 that's not going to work for you as the board, then it's not going to work for me either. That That's true conviction. And, and, and my curiosity is where, when you stood that way, did it go like did they it went fine exactly and i see this is something i think we all struggle so much with because i see people in position of relevance and power that are afraid of losing their job ultimately everybody would be afraid of losing their job but where they would compromise something like you know what they believe in just because of that fear and so that's I respect that greatly because a lot of people say, well, you wouldn't understand because you don't report to a public company board or something like that. And to me, it's more about what you're saying is what's true to you. You have to lead and to lead authentically, you have to stay true to who you are and your convictions. In in my upcoming blog, I I think it's going to be posted today, which is August 8th. I'm hoping that I will finish it by then. (laughs) I'm writing about an article that just came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And it's about presidents, university and college presidents, silence on tough issues, failure to speak out. And all sorts of reasons are given for why presidents are not speaking out. But that is not the point. I understand the reasons. The question is, still, why don't you do it anyway? Aren't there some topics on which 
you feel that as a college president representing an institution that is mission-based, and let's face it, it's, it's, it's not like a sock company. <laughs> it's an institution of higher education. Aren't there some topics on which you simply must speak out? Immigration, racial strides, violence, whatever. I mean, there, there ought to be some topics, and I'm not saying that everyone has to speak on all of them, but aren't there some topics that speak to the core of the mission of the institution that you serve, that you should, as the head of that, speak out. And if you get negative reaction, so be it. Yeah, yeah probably better because you now have can take into account that negative reaction into yeah. however you're going to do next. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, that the, the rhetoric is is harsher now than it was in 2018 when I stepped down as president, but not that much. <laughs> but I'm excited for you because it sounds to me that now that you have retired and we'll talk about because I know that the, it was a box of books or, you know, all these memorabilia that you had that prompted you to write this book. Uh, and I think that's exciting. But probably you have more freedom maybe to speak into and, and write articles and write books where you maybe in this position, you can really prompt more change and having had such relevant postings. Uh, you really come from a place of knowledge and authority and can really put this all this into the play like that new article you're writing. I think it's it's great that you point out to that silence and how it impacts what we do. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I'm sure it is. So so you had such a great career and then you I know you like to write. So tell us a little bit more about how experience if the angle road was born from you, you, you retire, you're in your next chapter in your life. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm no longer retired. I, I just, I, I failed at retirement. So I've now oh, taken wow, another job in consulting. So, uh, oh, that's great. I'm the senior vice president for the association of governing board consulting. Oh my God. That's... Yeah. Because I just, I don't know. I just don't retire well, but, I... but the way the book, the way the book started, I had retired and I, we moved from this huge presidential home to a two-bedroom two apartment. So we had to get rid of a lot of stuff. But one thing I refused to get rid of was these boxes and boxes of letters. And I kept them because I knew at some point I wanted to write something about, about my growth as a leader. And I was particularly interested because I had an experience. My mother had early onset Alzheimer's. I was very close to my mother as she started you know, being swallowed up by that horrible disease, I, I lost her. And the only way, e even before she died, the only way that I could protect myself from this deep sorrow was to sort of forget her, even while she was alive. And a friend of mine told me her mother had been an alcoholic. And she said, Bobby, don't worry as sad as it is, when your mother dies, your real mother will come back in your memory. And she said, there, there is comfort in that and knowing that. So I waited for that. My mother died in 1988. And I kept waiting for that to happen. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. And something like 20 years later, when my father died, my sister and I were going through memorabilia and stuff in this house that they'd lived in for 50 something, oh, maybe 60 years. And I found I had been looking all these years for these love letters from this boyfriend that I remembered. I fantasized with such a great boyfriend. He wasn't, but 
I was looking for these letters forever. And so Susan and I, my sister and I, are going through this junk and we find this plastic hat box and I open it up and there are the letters from David Silverform. Well, you know, oh my goodness, there they are. And I start looking at them and then I'm thinking, eh, they're not that great. <laughs> and I looked at the bottom of the bo- of that little hat box and there was another packet of letters with a rubber band around them. And I looked at them and I recognized my mother's handwriting. And it was my mother comforting me for David dropping me. Mm. And boom, just like that, my mother was in front of me. And that's what started the book. And I realized that those letters could bring those people back to me in a visceral kind of way. I mean, I heard her. I saw her. I smelt her. So that's how the book happened. That's beautiful. I think writing is such a powerful tool we have. Yes. We all have it in us. And even people that don't think they're good writers, you know, even today with the, you know, you can get help and you can get others to write for you, but it's you that's coming through the book that I think it's such a powerful thing. And the the title, I love the title. I am also curious about how you came because that that idea of the angle road, it's very compelling. Well, two things. First, I absolutely adore Emily Dickinson. So that's an Emily Dickinson quotation. And I often use her poetry as touchstones for uh, speeches, for writing of any type. And what this poem really captured is that there are angles in our life. And the question is, do we accept them as full stops or do we continue moving? And in my life, I think I've been fortunate although I've also consciously chosen to take the angle, you know, to take the right or left turn and move on. Mm, That's powerful. That is powerful. And so when there has been those angles, one of the things I always am very, let's say, excited about talking, it's how do we keep moving? Because in in my view, that's where we go to our back to basics. That's where we kind of try to find that, strength in us that comes from a source and that source is what I call the back to basis. What what was that source for you when you got to that angle where things were tough, there were big challenges? What kept you moving? Well, some of it was resilience, inner strength, but also a lot of it, and the book is a lot about this, those people around me that mentored me and supported me and gave me support, loved me. It's made a huge difference. Um, I mean, no one in my life is more important than my husband, who has, I've known, we've been married for 52 years and known each other forever. I I, I actually cannot remember my life without Don. We didn't date until later. He's a little older than I am. So, but I've known him my whole life. Uh, But my parents who were, yes, as as you read the book, you can see there were flaws, but they were good parents and they provided all sorts of support. And then these wonderful mentors that I had in each each of the jobs I held. And what was interesting, and, and, I, and I like to speak to young women about this a lot. I think sometimes women think, well, I can only have a mentor if it's a woman. No, no. The relationship between a mentor and a mentee is not gender-based. It does not have to be gender-based. And because of when I was growing up and becoming an academic leader, most of my mentors were men. 
because that's who was there. And that's great that you found men willing to mentor you, which is great. And there are, there are. There are men like that. Yes, and uh, and I also, there were also women mentors too. They just weren't as many. It wasn't like I didn't choose them. They just weren't around, you know. So, I mean, I think it's very important to ask the uh, values question. I mean, one of my most important mentors was my graduate school mentor, uh, C. Hugh Holman, very famous faculty member at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he was as different from me on these external markers as you could imagine. But on the other hand, we shared certain values and he was committed to helping and supporting me. And that's all that mattered. Mm, that's beautiful. And I think that, that that's very important what you're saying, because I see at least in, in telecommunications, the industry, I mean, that sometimes we confuse with the whole thing that we, we, women, we want to gain more, you know, visibility and all this, that we almost put ourselves into that track. Like I'm, I have to choose another women mentor and we rule out men. And I think we're doing a disservice I agree. Uh, to ourselves. And as many times I do mentor also young women, and, and but I always say I mentor the younger people, you know, even, you know, anybody. But there's always like this push into, into that diversity and inclusion where we are almost, I feel sometimes we are discriminating even more just by trying to push only one side. And it's a little bit scary. And, and I think that that's exactly right, that you have to ask the internal questions. And also, when you're thinking about diversity, I think it's so important to be thinking about diversity, not somebody else's definition of what's diversity. So, for instance, one of the things that I was very proud of when I was president of the College of New Jersey is to see how many men were going into nursing in our school of nursing. Mm -hmm. That's great. Absolutely. On the same token, I was at a high school on career there recently, and I say, you know, who wants to study? And, you know, there were several professions and there were maybe 80 percent of the girls that wanted to go into nursing. And so that's also like, it seemed to me as somebody that's on, on the technical side, on the STEM side, it's like, why everybody are nursing? And you can see the influence that people, that older people have on the young kids. Yes. They're saying this is a steady job. And, and so we get into these categories where even the youth doesn't know what other options there are because uh, people of influence in their lives don't allow them to see that there's really a broad selection of professions that they can go for. And they kind of stick to to some that are kind of gender based. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. So, so that's great. So if I had to ask, like, when you wrote this book, and when you, you have somebody that this is great, I really will have all the information on the show notes. It's going to be released, and I really encourage everybody to read it. But if you could say, there's a couple of let's say wisdom nuggets, or or like the thing that you want people to live with with this book, what would it be? Um, I want to go back to this notion of basing your career on doing something that you love. And the other piece is, is realizing that, that whatever you're doing should be based on values and things that you feel comfortable with. I was recently on a search committee, uh, and, or, or advising a search committee and, they said, so what are some of the questions we should ask this academic leader? And I said, one of the most important questions to ask is, what are the grounds on which, the values grounds on which you would quit? Mm. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I love that. 
And so my point is what we were discussing earlier, that there should be a point at which you understand there is is a certain initiative or a certain value or a certain idea that you cannot budge on. And it cannot, can't be a lot. And it has to be something that's, from my mind, it has to be values-based. This is so important to me that if my supervisor or the chair or whatever of the, the board or whatever doesn't support it, it's just not for me. That's very powerful. That's a wisdom, even for me as a CEO, it's, it's, it's a great reminder, you know, because sometimes you do feel alone when you have strong values and, and a strong core and you realize that sometimes you're willing to take a stand, but others know it's very humbling. And also you, you get afraid that are these people going to think I'm crazy, but uh, it's worth sometimes letting them know that where you stand. Yeah. And also, I think there's there's another thing. This And this is not about career. This is when you become the CEO of whatever to recognize that. You may be sitting in the chair as the CEO, but you are not the CEO alone, that you are something else. And don't confuse yourself with the position. Oh, I love that. I really like that. Yeah, your identity is funny because when I, I recently, I know you have another web page, which I also encourage everybody to visit and they get to know also more about the person. And and I do believe uh, like four years ago, I, I felt that need to have my own web page where I could showcase all of me, not just the CEO. Exactly. And I even put, you know, I'm a family lover and I have a little bit, tidbit of my family and how I am, who is Leticia as a family member, you mm-hmm. know, as a mom. Yeah. Because sometimes we have to take sides and, and yes. it's not exactly who you are, you know, and it, it, and it does get create conflict. So when you put it out there and people know exactly what you stand for in all aspects of your life, I think it's, been, it's made it easier for me to take stands because it's out there who I am. And so there's no need to kind of uh, pretend you're something you're not. Exactly. Exactly. So this this has been great, Bobby. I always give people the opportunity to, you know, say anything else that's exciting you these days. While you're writing a new article, I say you to you aren't retired, which I totally get. And my dad is 88, <laughs> and he has never stopped working. So I think <laughs> I'm on the same boat. I I don't think uh, I can retire neither. What are you working on that excites you this day? You have an open microphone to share anything. Well, right now I am enjoying this new job that I've taken, uh, and and what I'm enjoying about it, it, it as I said, it's it, I'm the senior vice president for AGB Consulting. What excites me about it is that I can be part of helping institutions of higher education improve their governance, because it is so important for boards of trustees to know what their responsibilities are, to understand higher education, to know what their responsibilities are, and to understand the role of the president and how that partnership between president and board is so important. It's a mutually supportive relation relationship. And to me, higher education, particularly in the United States, which I know better than I know uh, international higher education, is such a precious thing. And it has to be preserved and nurtured and supported. And um, the work of boards is some of the most important ways that that's going to happen because they're the voice from the outside to the inside but also from the inside to the outside that's beautiful i think that's uh that's 
they're very uh, lucky to have you. And I think <laughs> yes, because you give great advice and you do have a career, a successful career behind you to prove that that, you know, that wisdom can be well employed. And I thank you so much for sharing this book with the world because it's really full of wisdom in every corner. And I personally loved, and I say this for anybody that is inclined to read it, how you position, you know, your relationship with your family. You introduce your mom, you introduce your dad as a way to explaining who you became and why you became that way. And then in your own journey, your husband and and other important aspects of your own life that define who you are. So I think it's really the closest to a back to basics book I can. Oh, thank you so much. It's really like the way I structure my, my show. And that's why I was so excited when you said yes, to be a part of it. Well, I thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Likewise, thank you so much. Best of luck. And I will share all the information about this incredible new book and about author Bobby Gittenstein in the show notes. Thank you so much, everybody. And until the next episode. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.